So we are continuing our series. We're studying the life of David, and we finally crossed the line here into the second half of the story. We're in 2 Samuel. Kind of last week, Bob kind of closed up chapter, not chapter one, but book one and began book two. Did a fantastic job. Um, I really appreciate all that you shared and the focus you brought to how this points to Christ's life. Like everything about David, this king, points to the king that is coming. And it was fantastic content there, Bob. So thank you. We're going to be in chapter two. However, before we do, I just want to let you know I have a resource here. And I don't have enough for everybody, although I can make more if you want them. But up here on this table, after the service, if you want to grab one, as we begin Holy Week, the Passion Week of the Christ, um, it's reasonable and natural and good that we would direct our minds to the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the week, right, that really begins in a focused way our, our, uh, atten- paying attention to the death of Jesus. It's a pretty big scene in the Gospels, right? Not only, not only is it the obvious climax, but the, the Gospel writers, if you read through them, like John is 21 chapters. If you go through John's Gospel, he gets to this week. He gives th- his first three years of Jesus' life get 11 chapters. The last seven days get the other 10, right? This, it's all about right now. What we're, what we're celebrating this morning of Palm Sunday this time that Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is declared to be king by a very fickle crowd, this starts our particular focused march to the cross. Uh, and Jesus' death is what the whole thing is about. And so I went through, a little while ago, I went through uh, the New Testament, and I just made note, I just marked uh, every verse in the New Testament that reflects on Jesus' death. And this is, this is them. So I don't know what this is, seven, eight pages, ten pages? of every passage on Jesus' death. And I just went through, and I find this, I saw this, took this out from time to time and go and read through it and be like, what, when the New Testament reflects on Jesus' death, what does it say? What are the, what are the implications? Where does this go? And of course, it's, it's all, you know, it's comprehensive. And so I just made like 30 copies of this. If you want to grab one, they're here up front, and uh, it might serve you for this week. If you're spending time in the scriptures this week, perhaps this might be where you would be. And just every day, go through a page and ponder and consider, what does the Bible say about the death of Christ as the center of all things? So these be up here if you want to grab one after the service or after this class. Um, but otherwise, we're going to be in Second Samuel. So open your Bibles to Second Samuel. And we're really going to be in chapter 1. Bob took us, uh, or we're going to be in chapter 2, rather. Bob took us into the beginning of chapter 1. And what happens, what was the, what's the event that Bob talked about last week? What happened? Saul died. Saul's dead. We've been waiting for this for a very long time, right? So David has been anointed to be king, but he doesn't get to be king until the old king is dead. Long live the king, right? New king, the old king is dead. And so finally, he's died. And David's response to that is really appropriate. He grieves and he mourns for, as he has consistently said for years and years, Saul is the Lord's anointed and he's not going to lay a hand on him. And so when he dies, he doesn't dance on his grave. He grieves. And not only is Saul dead, but who else is dead? Jonathan, his best friend, right? And so David enters into this time of grieving. Um, and that's really what you see in chapter 1, is he, he grieves the death of Saul, grieves the death of Jonathan. But now it's time to pivot. It is time to move. So what do you think are the most pressing questions that David would be facing now that Saul is finally dead? What do you think? Are you king? Okay, so does he get to be king now is a major thing, right? Is, is, he, okay, is, it, is it time? Is it go time? Absolutely. What else? There's a couple things that, uh, 
not only is the old king dead, but Saul has another role in David's life besides king. What is Saul's other role in David's life? Uh, okay, father-in-law, that's true. Although that wasn't what I was thinking of, but that's absolutely true. How does David experience Saul for the last 15 chapters? His antagonist, his pursuer. He's the one who made him flee from Israel, right? And so what's the question that would flow from that? If, if, if Saul is dead, what's David going to wonder? His family. Yeah, how's his family going to go? But what, what, what might David want to do that he couldn't do as long as Saul was alive? Come back, right? He wants to come back to Judah. He wants to come back to Israel. He's been not living out with the Philistines. Maybe he's been running around. He's on the hiding. He's living in caves. And now it's like, can I go home? Like, is my, if my pursuer is dead, can I come back? If the old king is dead, can I become king? And even maybe if I'm allowed to go home, where is home? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? And so chapter two is about all of those questions. The king is dead. The pursuer is dead. Do I get to go home? Where should I go? Will I be enthroned as king? What's happening? This is a big transition period for David, okay? So that's where we're going to take a look. So take a look. Oh, by the way, where do you think David's going to go to get his answers to those questions? He's going to seek the Lord, okay? This is just very consistent with David. We're going to see now that everything has changed, this fundamental aspect of who David is doesn't change at all. So take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. Of course he did. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. And the Lord said, go up. And David asked, well, where shall I go? And the answer is to Hebron, which is so interesting. I'm not sure that I would have thought of that. We'll talk about why that's significant in a minute. And so in verse 2, David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns, okay? So the answer is, yes, go home. You can go back in. You don't have to hang out with all these Philistines anymore. And I want you to go to Hebron. Now, anybody have any, does, it, does that city have any significance to you? Do you know why, why there? What does that mean? You got anything about that? It's not necessarily going to roll off the tip of our tongues. John, do you know what's going on with that town? During Abraham's time, Okay, so actually allied to uh, uh, one of the uh, kings. Okay, so this is so. However, I don't think it's the most significant thing about Hebron that we need to know. Do you know what marks that town? It's a it's a very special place for something that we don't necessarily know much about. Anybody know what it is? Okay, so I'll show you. Go back, grab your Bible, and go back to Numbers thirty-five. So Hebron is what is known as a city of refuge. And this is a funny little Old Testament thing that we may not know too much about. You might know. Remember this? Cities of refuge? We studied this with the fellows, okay? So um, let's see. The Levites are given special towns, right? The Levites are the priests. They don't get, so the Levites don't get uh, a region, right? So like every, all 12 sons get their own kind of state, county because it's kind of small but some region this is judah this is benjamin this is you know whatever manasseh this is ephraim this is different places but the levites don't get any they are the priests and they have rather cities scattered throughout all of them but some of their cities take a look at this uh verse nine leviticus i'm sorry number numbers 35 9 this is the history you have to know if you're going to understand why david goes to hebron <laughs> then the lord said to moses speak to the israelites and say to them 
when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your, here it is, cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. These six towns that you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for the Israelites, aliens, and any other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. Okay? So it's a really, it's going to seem strange to our sense of jurisprudence, but if I kill George, oh. George's family members can essentially issue retribution against me. They would, they would be, sometimes they're called kinsman redeemer. It's also called the avenger of blood, right? So I don't know who your avenger of blood would be, but if I kill you, you want to be the avenger of blood? Okay, so Terry's coming after me, all right? All right? And if Terry comes after me, she can kill me, and it's fair game, right? Unless I can make it to the city of refuge. The city of refuge is base. Once you're on base, nobody can touch you, right? And you stay there and you wait there. And it's interesting, you stay in the city of refuge. And as long as you're inside the city, nobody can touch you, right? Now, they can, have a, they can hold a trial to slow the thing down because Terry in her white hot rage might come after me not realizing that it was completely accident. There was no, no cause. And so we want to put a place where we're going to slow the system down. That everything's going to be okay. Slow down, relax. Nobody can kill anybody. Let's, let's sort this out. Then we can hold the trial. And then you stay there until the, until the high priest dies, which is interesting, interesting symbol, symbolism. Zach? Historically, do we know what kept these cities as cities of refuge over time? What kept them as, well. When you think you would make such a rule, right, especially over time, they stayed cities of refuge. So like what? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So there's all kinds of rules that Israel is given that they completely disregard. They never, ever do. Right. And so as far as we know, this one they kept. Hebron became a city of refuge. There were other cities where they really followed these rules. Uh, and I don't know historically, like there was a rule, do you know this, every 49 years, all debts are canceled. It's called the year of Jubilee. All the debts are canceled. Everybody returns to their land. Whatever you've sold into hawk to kind of get yourself out of debt, you get it all back. They never did it, not once. <gasps> they never followed that rule. This one they followed. So some they did, some they didn't. My guess would be the ones they found to their liking, they kept. Right? Does that sound familiar? And the ones they didn't, they didn't. Okay? So, for the city of refuge, this, watch, this is so interesting. Verse 16, if a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he's a murderer. And that murderer shall be put to death. If anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone so he dies he's a, or he's a murderer, he shall be put to death. Right? He goes, all these sort of things that can happen. But, then he gives kind of what we would consider manslaughter down in verse 22. That there are these rules but look at this. If you make it to the city of refuge in verse 26, if the accused, which would be me in this case, ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled, the avenger of blood finds him outside the city. The avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And only after the death of the high priest may he return to his property. We're not going to spend much more time on this, but there, we, every year with the fellows, we, study, we, we walk through the scriptures to see how all of it points to Christ. Not just the life of David, but all of it does. And these cities of refuge are just this fascinating portrait that there is a place where the accused may go and they're safe. They're rescued. Jesus is 
that city of refuge. If we're hidden in him, we're safe. But apart from him, there's great danger, right? And then you stay in that city until the high priest dies, which I think itself is a picture that one day the high priest, the great high priest will die. And once he dies, we're safe anyway, <coughs> right? We, are, we, come, we flee to him for refuge. And he's the one who gives us this safety, okay? So that's what a city of refuge is in broad terms. Bob, you want to say something? It's interesting that Joshua gave Hebron to uh, Caleb. As <coughs> yes. So Hebron is also, so remember Joshua and Caleb? These are the two guys that like when the, when the, ten, or the 12 spies go out, 10 of them are all like, this is terrible. Everybody's going to kill us. We're like grasshoppers on their site. Joshua and Caleb are the two guys that are like, no, let's trust the Lord. He said he would give it to us. Let's let him give it to us. And then Caleb is given this particular city. So Hebron is a city of, it's a Levite city. Necessarily all the cities of refuge are Levite cities. It's a city of refuge. It's a Caleb city. And so David is sent to go there. Okay, now, why would David be sent to a city of refuge at this moment in time? What might be going on here? Why would he need to be in a place where like everybody slows the thing down and there's no avenging of blood? Chris? All of the officers of Saul, all of his second in commands would probably be wondering about this transition period and wondering yes. to keep their status. Yes, okay, so it's a, it's a, there's so much going on. When Saul is dead, okay, now that Saul is dead, now there's gonna be a whole big question. Who's gonna be the king? How's, how's the new king gonna come about? And there is also in that this undercurrent of did David conspire against Saul? And if you've been reading the book, you're like, he said like 500 times, I'll never lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Nevertheless, when the old king dies, the new king's under suspicion, right? What are you doing? That's why this author is very at great pains to say, now David wasn't, he was 100 miles away. He had nothing to do with it. Well, maybe he was and maybe he wasn't. Let's, you know. And so God sends him to a place where nobody, where no avenger of blood can come and get him, right? Does that make sense? So that's why I think he goes to Hebron. Catherine. And also, people at that point are going to want to grab power. Absolutely. Power. Absolutely. And we're going to see the way the story plays out is now the great, you, know, you, might, you might think in your sweet naivete that now that the old king is dead, he's like, all right, David, your turn. Step right up. But that's not the way the world works, right? And now there's going to be, we're going to vie for the throne. Who's going to be the king? And we'll watch what happens. All right, good enough? All right, let's keep going. So, uh, uh, let's see, where do we want to go? Big issue now is who's going to be the king. Take a look at verse 4. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I, too, will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Okay? What is David doing with the Jabesh Gilead crowd? Why is he thanking them for their kindness to Saul? This camp. Yes, right? He is trying to curry favor to get them into his camp, but he is also sincere about this. You, you watch this, we, you see this human nature play out every time like a Supreme Court justice dies. And though we have an apolitical Supreme Court, <laughs> <laughs> though we do, it seems like there's some sense of whose side you're on. Have you ever noticed this, right? And so when, uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and a Republican says something snippy, we all jump all over him, right? Because he just shouldn't do that. 
And when, who, and when Scalia dies and a Democrat says something snippy, we all jump all over. There should be, there ought to be a sense across the political spectrum that even if they're not on your team, there's honor and there's respect. You know that, that's why we wish was the case. And maybe if you've got a good PR person, then you know, you're on the op- when you're on the opposing team, your Twitter person will send out something about how much you honor their contribution. But secretly, you know, you're like, no, I am so glad they're dead, right? That, that's this <laughs> phenomenon, right? This is across the board. This is what's happening right here, right here, is David, hear this, he's really not secretly so glad he's dead. He has been, this is the Lord's anointed, I'm not going to touch him, right? And so in this moment, he's going to be suspected to be like sending off tweets to his friends that he's not publicizing. But what he's doing here is he's saying, listen, you honored the king and that is good and we honor you, okay? And then it says in verse 7 something significant. What does it say right there in verse 7? Now then, be strong and brave for Saul, your master, is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What is that about? The house of Judah has anointed me king. What's up, Shema? Good to see you. What is that? What's going on with that? Is this good news or bad news? It's good. But what is it, Bill? But there's 10 other tribes or 11, depending on how you count where Benjamin lies, right? So there's other tribes. So David had been anointed king. Okay, like what are we said? 15 years ago, king over what? The whole thing. It's all his, right? He's supposed to be king over the whole nation. And now... He's king over, he's been anointed king over Judah. It would be like, you know, you were elected president of the United States and you're ruling over Texas or something, right? It's like, well, what about the other 49? How, how are we doing? And so that's what we're about to see. We're about, we, you might have expected, finally Saul is dead, David is king. This is not going to play out that way. It's going to take a little bit more of an effort. So there's going to be some distinct sides. This is, this is where it's going to be helpful to kind of get some characters straight. So let me try to help you with this. Um, do you anybody remember who's David's commander? Who's David's military guy? Joab. Joab. Okay, you got to keep a couple names straight. So Joab, 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 Joab. Joab is David's guy. Joab is a guy. So you might, you might remember this. DJ. Okay, David and Joab. David is king over Judah, and the and the military guy over Judah is Joab. So D's and J's over on this side. David and Judah, and Joab. DJ. Got it. The other side is Israel, and do you know who the standard bearer for Israel is going to become? Ishbosheth. Okay, so eyes and eyes. Eye, eye. So you go over here, we got DJs, David, Judah, and Joab. On the other side, you're going to have, over Israel, we have Ishbosheth, and do you know who his military guy and who kind of who his sponsor is? Ab- Abner. So it's not an I, but at least it's a vowel, okay? So you got your I's and your A's. You got I's and A's. Vowels over here and DJ over there. You're going to want to keep this straight because if you read through the story, you're going, to get, you're going to get lost. At least maybe you don't have my disorder. I have a horrible, I do not recommend this at all, but whenever I read anything at all, I just skip all proper nouns and I'm endlessly confused. Some dude said this and somebody went somewhere and then I'm like, wait, what's happening? This has been true for like 40 years and it's, I can't tell you how handicapping it is to read like that. Okay, so you got to keep Joab and Abner distinct. They're on opposite sides of the team, right? Ishbo, uh, the vowels, I's and A's over here, DJ's over there, okay? John. I understand Ishbosheth. Uh, Cromwell was not the name his mom gave him because it means son of shame. 
Yes, that would be an unfortunate name. There's a lot of weird names in the Bible. My favorite is Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Can you imagine naming your kid that? Like, I don't know what they call him, Speedy or something. Um, <laughs> okay, so with your, you got your name straight. We're going to watch. There's going to be, this is where the intrigue is going to come up. So you're going to have David versus Ishbosheth. You're going to have uh, Jay, Joab versus Abner, right? And there's going to be there's going to be a lot of conflict here, all right? And we'll see how it plays. So go to go to verse eight, chapter two, verse eight. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, whose side is he on? Israel. Right, Israel, Ishbosheth. Oh, and who is Ishbosheth? Do you know? He's Saul's kid, so he's Jonathan's brother. And so when the king dies, who becomes king? Son of the king. All right, so Ishbosheth is heir to the throne. Okay. So meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner. The commander of Saul's army had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, Jezreel, and all, also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. They should have just said all Israel, right? <laughs> and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, over here, the DJ side, they followed David. And the length of David, length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, it's a little bit hard to reconcile two years here and seven and a half years here. What we think is that those two years were at the end. That for about five years, nobody was king over Israel. And it's at the very end of like what David's time over Judah. So it lines up like this, not like this. You with me? So if that's, and we're not sure about this, the data, the, the text just doesn't tell us for sure. But if it's true that it took five years for Israel to have a king, who was reigning over those lands in the meantime, do you think? It was in their council. Okay. Abner, maybe militaristically a council. I think there's somebody else. You want to think, broaden your circle a little bit. Who killed Saul? The Philistines. It was the Philistines, right? And so, the, so what happens when you kill the, the king of the army? I mean, the king. You're the man, all right? So it's probably the case. We don't, have, we don't have a lot of historical data on this, but it's probably for those five years, the Philistines are like, David Shmavid, it's ours. We killed Saul. David didn't kill Saul. We did. It's our land. We took it. And it took a while, maybe, maybe under Abner, under Abner's leadership, and maybe David's going to have to come in. But it's probably the case that during this whole thing, it's not just that David dies and the new guy comes in. It's the enemy comes in, right? And so it's a sloppy time. It's a painful time. It's a messy time. It's not generally good news when your king dies. But David's made king over Judah, whatever's going down in Israel. And then finally, it's time and the power is going to begin to coalesce. And now we're going to see if David can become king over all of it. And the answer is, of course, yes, but not yet. We got a little bit of work to do. Shima? So um, there's kind of like a split between Israel and Judah at this point, but I thought that didn't happen until later. Okay, sure. So uh, we, when we, we generally would say that the kingdom of Israel, mm, how do I do this? So the kingdom of Israel is a united kingdom under three kings. Do you know who they are? Saul, David, Solomon. Okay, so Saul, David, and Solomon, they reign over the whole thing. All 12 tribes, the whole thing, it's all theirs. Okay, then after Solomon dies, then you're going to get this split between two guys. Do you remember their names? Jeroboam and 
Rehoboam. You guys are crushing this. You guys should be up here. Okay, so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the nation's going to split. So in American terms, it's like the North and the South. We have a civil war, except there's not actually a war. They don't fight each other. They just kind of decide they don't like each other, and they get a divorce. Okay, and so you have the northern tribes, which is the ten northern tribes, most of Israel, most of the landmass, and then just the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And what, what ends up happening is that is, the northern tribes are going to keep the name. Did the North call, did the United States call itself, did the North call itself the United States under Lincoln? So the same thing, right? So the North keeps the name, and then the South doesn't call itself Israel, it just calls itself Judah, right? But they keep the promise. It's from Judah. It's from the kings of Judah that the, uh, that the Messiah is going to come. So the north gets Israel, the name Israel, but the south is, is really the faithful tribe. Okay? That's coming, and this is in some way like an, an, an anticipation of that. You get a sense, perhaps, that there's already fault lines. right? That even though we're like 100 years away from that happening, you already get a sense that maybe there are some distinct cultures, some distinct loyalties, a, a, little, a, a greater ease that Judah is David's guy. I mean, David, David is like, Judah's all on board for, for, for David. And maybe the north is a little more skeptical. So it's probably whatever kind of natural fault lines exist check, there check. are going to be more exploited one, when Solomon's finally dead. So it does kind of anticipate it. Good enough? David says that Ishbosheth was made king. Yes. So there was two kings yeah, we almost never, we never give, it's almost like, you know, Saul, David, and Solomon, and then there's a little Al-Saran, Ishbosheth. And I think that's probably because Ishbosheth, which is hard to say, uh, was just singularly ineffective. His reign was two years, it was a limited reign, and he wasn't very effective. We're going to see more of his failings in chapter three, but he is kind of a footnote of history, you know, not the, not the real thing. Good enough? Okay. All right. So. This opposition to David's kingship does coalesce, and it coalesces around this one guy, our boy Ishbosheth. Um, so he's a son of Saul, and that's something, right? In a you know, in a whatever you call a monarchy. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see. We'll save it for next week. Good grief. Okay, we gotta we gotta end early because it's Palm Sunday. Um, so we gotta move quick. So um, mm. let's see. What do I want to tell you? Go to verse. Go to verse twelve. I want you to get, well at least get the high points of this. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, they leave this place, they go to Gibeon. Um, Joab and David's men go out to fight and meet them at the pool of Gibeon. And you can see it's already coming. There's two clear factions. There's Team David, there's Team Ishbosheth, and they're going to have a they're going to have a fight. And what they choose to do is have this weird kind of like direct combat. You get a dozen men from each tribe, and we're going to go up and fight. And whoever wins wins. And you know what happens when they do this? Nobody wins. Why does nobody win? They all kill. They all kill each other. It's like 12 guys on 12 guys. They each stab each other and they all fall dead. And it's like, well, now we don't know what to do. And so you know what they do? Now it's like open battle and they go. And there's huge conflict. These are all, we've been used to fighting against the Philistines. This is the North and the South. This is internecine war. This is like our team. This is the people of God fighting against the people of God, which is always a wretched, tragic thing. And so let's see, look what happens. Um, it says, so they, after they kill each other, in verse 17, the battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. Okay? What do you think that comment is meant to show? Once they get down to the 12 on 12 and it's zero survive, what's going to happen? Is that Judah's going to win. What is that 
What is that preparing us for? Do you know what's happening? This is going to happen throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3. So you're going to begin to see. Right now, we don't, we don't know who's going to win. David is going to ascend, and Ishbosheth is going to descend. The, the people fighting for Judah are going to win, and the people fighting for Israel are going to lose, and David's kingdom is going to overcome. We're, we're seeing, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting. We think it's going to happen. It's not going to happen easily, but it's going to happen because David is anointed. David has been anointed king over the whole thing. And so you just got to go clean up the mess, all right? And then a very personal conflict happens. And this is what I want you to see before we close out of here. Um, who are the main guys over here on the DJ side? Who are our characters? David. Joab. And Joab, right? And this is on, what's the other J? Judah. So over here on the Judah side, you get David, and Joab is the guy. And then who's the main military guy over here on the vowel side? Abner. Okay. Now, Abner and, jo and Joab are going to be not real close. Okay. So take a look at verse 18. Three sons of Zariah were there. Joab, over here, he's the David guy. Abishai and Asahel. You got to say Asahel very carefully, by the way. Okay. Um, now, Asahel was as fleet footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner. That's this guy over here, right? So Joab's brother starts going after Abner. And the problem is, Joab's brother is quick. And he chases him and chases him and chases him. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he said. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or the left. Take one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Why do you think Abner doesn't want Asahel to chase him? Because Abner's going to kill him if he does. Abner is going to kill him. Abner's going to win. And he knows what happens, what's going to happen if the commander of Team Israel kills the brother of the commander of Team Judah. Oh, it's going to be on. It's going to be on, okay? Now, Asahel is fast, but this is a military man. He's chasing a military guy, and he's like, stop it, just stop it. I'm one more step, just stop it, okay? And then he tries to stop him without killing him. Look at what he does. Again, Abner warns him in verse 22, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? This is going to mean like open war. So this just, can we not do this? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. And so Abner thrust the butt of his spear, not the pointy side, but the blunt side. He goes after him to stop him, but not to kill him. He's trying to like de-escalate. Oh but <laughs> the spear, but Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. This is gruesome. This is wretched. Like, I don't know how much, how fast is this dude, right? Like, this is like, you know, the blunt end of the stick. It comes in him, through him, and out his back. And it's so gross that these men, these military men who are, you know, used to blood-splattered fields, when everybody gets there, look what it says. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. It's a weird death. It's a gross. It wasn't what he was trying to do, but it is what he did. Maybe a little bit too much. Stop it! Jams it through him. Maybe the boy is just so quick. But whatever it is, too much force is applied, and he dies. And as you would expect, Joab's like, okay, let's go. You just killed my brother. And so in verse 24, Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to this hill. And they're just, it's on. It's going to go. They rise to us under a group. They take a stand. 
but Abner, who is wisely, he's on, Abner's the bad guy, right? We're on team Judah, okay? We're fight, we, we want Judah to win. We want David to be king. But Abner is an honorable man. He's on the wrong side, but he's on the, I mean, of course, he's, he's rooting for the home team, right? It's a little bit, not exactly like, but, you know, we struggle in the United States to try to make sense of the Civil War, and there's so much grief and misery and sin and wretchedness to go around. But, like, if you look at a guy like Robert E. Lee, by all accounts, Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, right? And I'm in Virginia, so I probably, it's probably safer to say that here than in some places, right? <laughs> but, so he's, they, you know, they tried to recruit Robert E. Lee to fight. Lincoln tried to recruit Robert E. Lee to fight for the North. But he's like, yeah, dude, listen, I'm not going to fight against Virginia, right? Abner, the, the impression we get of Abner is that he's, an, he's fighting for the home team, but he's an honorable guy, and he's trying to de-escalate. Even after he's killed Asahel, he still wants to kind of slow this thing down. And so in verse 26, he calls out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing your brothers? For the second time, I think, maybe the third, but at least the second time in this book, Joab, this, this happens. Tell me if this reminds you of anything. Joab answered, as surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued the pursuit of their brothers until morning. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah. Where, where is it? Uh, David about to get his second wife. Yes. David with who? With Abigail. This is, this is the same speech that Abigail gives. He's like, put on your swords. We're going to go kill Nabal. And Abel sends up like a million sheep and fig cakes and stuff. And she's like, don't do it. Why shed innocent blood? Just de-escalate. And David's like, you know what? You're right. I was going to kill everybody. But now I won't. Thanks for the fig newtons, you know. And, <laughs> and that it's happening here. And so you're meant, you're meant to be reminded of that and be like, oh, that was a good thing. That was a godly thing. That was a transformative moment where we step back from the cliff and it's happening again. So it, it, sh- it should elevate Abner in your mind, but also elevate Joab. That the, that the men here, they are trying not to go to nuclear war. We're trying to calm this thing down. Nevertheless, it's still going to get ugly, okay? The lines are drawn. Two sides are formed. Who's winning right now, does it seem? Judah's winning, right? Oh, but do we see, I, I think I skipped because I'm, I'm so time conscious. What's the, what's the death count? Did you see that? Did we look at that yet? Uh, yeah, go to, go to verse 30. Take a look. The author is preparing us for this. It says, then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. And beside Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. Missing means dead. 19. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner, okay? Of those 19, we can account for 12, right? 12 of them died in that mutual knife stabbing. So they only lost seven people in open battle, whereas the other guy lost like, you know, 348. It's a rout. And again, but you, the picture is here, okay, it's coming, it's coming. And really by the end of next week, uh, two weeks, because we, won't, we, won't, we will not have class on Easter, Okay, so the week after Easter, we'll look at chapter 3. And the kingdom is about to finally, after years of waiting, and then like another like, you know, seven years of like distress, David's finally going to become king. Okay? That was stranger because we're pressed for time and I couldn't allow you guys to speak. So I apologize for that. Normally we have this much more interactive, but I wanted to get through that before we um, get ready to go to Palm Sunday. But that's where we're at. So we're transitioning. David's about to become king. 
It's just going to be a little bit harder. But there's some godly men on each side trying to bring this about in a, in a fresh way. Okay? So, up here, the death of Jesus. You want to reflect on Jesus' death this week? This is every time the New Testament does. Come grab one of these. And if you're coming into church, grab, a, grab palms. We're going to go in and we're going to celebrate. And Quig will lead us in. Oh.